Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we take a trip down musical memory lane to 1982 and the release of The Safety Dance. The founder and lead singer of Men Without Hats joins me to talk about the lasting legacy of that tune and why 80s music in general continues to resonate decades later. We find out why they're turning off the taps for non-essential industrial and commercial use of water on BC's Sunshine Coast. Just how long could it last? And how is it impacting a whole range of businesses, including the area's most popular brewery? In the aftermath of the stabbing death of RCMP Constable Shailene Yang in the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby, a member of the Detachment Mental Health and Homeless Outreach team, we look into the risks officers specialize in responding to mental health-related calls, face, and what more could be done to protect them. But first, inflation dipped slightly last month in Canada despite sky-high grocery prices, but many expect the Bank of Canada to go ahead with another significant interest rate hike next week, the 6th this year alone. We find out why one economist thinks that hike will do more harm than good for Canadians already struggling to make ends meet. Canadians continue to cope with inflation rates not seen since way back then, according to StatsCan's latest Consumer Price Index report, the country's annual inflation rate in September dropped just a bit to 6.9% from 7% in August. University of Calgary economics professor Trevor Toome says inflation has been slowing over the last few months, largely due to gas prices. Energy prices was the overwhelmingly dominant factor that led inflation to rise as high as it did. And so for it to lead the deceleration is not at all surprising, right? And it is tied to oil prices, which have come down from their highs earlier this year. You know what hasn't come down? Food prices. That includes a 7.5% jump in the cost of restaurant meals and an 11.4% jump for groceries. That's the biggest surge since way back in 1981, before the safety dance even was released. Add it all up, and analysts are concerned that inflation is proving more persistent than expected. It also means we can expect another interest rate hike from the Bank of Canada next week. The next announcement is on October 26th. Analysts are divided right now. Most are leaning now towards a 75 basis basis point hike. So from 3.2% now to 5%, rather, up to 4.4%. Keep in mind, it was 0.25% just in January. So that's a big jump in one calendar year, and we're not even done yet. Well, joining me now with more on this is economist Jim Stanford. He's director of the Center for Future of Work and author of a new report out today, along with the Canadian Labour Congress, called Orthodox Cure for Inflation Will Be Worse Than the, than the Disease. Uh, Jim, the title says it all. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, no surprise, I guess, that inflation remains high, but stubbornly so. What do you make of it? Well, there wasn't much to celebrate in that uh, report today from Statistics Canada. The so-called headline rates fell just a bit from 7 to 6.9%. That was, as, as uh, the economist cited in that report mentioned, all due to gasoline prices. Uh, other things, including groceries, are still going up. The uh, Bank of Canada's interest rate hikes, uh, curiously, have not reduced inflation. In fact, they've made it worse, Ben. Uh, Housing costs are 30% of the total consumer price bundle, and housing costs are going up because of higher interest rates, Uh, both the mortgage component of uh, people who own their house plus rents. Rents are really going up. So, you know, so far, the cure is worse than the disease, uh, if you like 
Yeah, and and you have a 32-page report uh, that that delves into that deeply into why it isn't working. But I guess before we go there, uh, and as you mentioned, Canadians are really feeling the impact of eroding spending power, higher cost to service their debts, including mortgages and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, this, these are tough times. I mean, uh, that that inflation rate doesn't tell the whole story, does it? No, they're very tough times. I mean, remember, we've just come through a pandemic. The pandemic is ultimately the key factor at work here. Uh, It was the disruptions in supply chains and transportation costs and now the energy price shock uh, from the invasion of Ukraine and so on uh, that's been driving uh, this. So honestly, the uh, Canadians are pulling out their hair, aren't they? They they tried hard to get through the pandemic to get their jobs back, to pay their bills. Now the interest rates are going up. And now we're looking at a likely recession right around the corner. So, you know, it's no wonder there's a bit of a bleak mood out there. Yeah, we just uh, talked about a holiday spending report that Deloitte put out yesterday where Canadians mm. are, are feeling pretty gloomy going into the holidays. Not about each other. We're happy to see each other again. Sure. We're certainly planning, certainly planning on spending less. And I think that reflects overall consumer confidence. So the Bank of Canada is really playing by its playbook. Uh, many other central banks are doing exactly the same thing. Hike interest rates, try to lower demand, and then inflation falls, so the story goes. Uh, but Canada is doing this further and faster than others. And you think that's the wrong move? I I do. I don't know why, as a small, open trading economy, Canada should be in the lead of this race. But we are. Uh, Along with the Americans, together, we have increased interest rates further and faster than any other major industrial country. The Europeans have gone much easier. Uh, Japan hasn't raised their interest rates at all. So, um, you know, it is almost like the people in charge have looked at that 1980s textbook. I know we were doing some nostalgia with men without hats there, and that is my that is my era too. And I learned economics in the 80s, and we were all told it's a nightmare. Wage price spiral. Wages rise, then prices rise, then wages rise again. And the only way to combat it is to clamp down the whole economy with high interest rates. Well, that nightmare scenario from the 1970s isn't remotely what's happening right now, Ben. Uh, wages were not increasing, and they're still not increasing, despite the uptick in inflation uh, at anything unusual. Um, prices have grown much more than wages, and the, the labor share of the overall economic pie has actually shrunk, not grown. That's the exact opposite of the 1970s. But uh, we're still applying that same recipe, if you like, that same policy response, um, even though the inflation we see today, the result of the pandemic, was never written up in any textbook, I can tell you. We never studied the economic effects of pandemics in any of those textbooks. So I think we should be a bit more creative in thinking about how we respond. Yeah, I'm thinking back to my economics courses in the 80s. I don't remember anything about uh, a a sudden and abrupt deflation with a bunch of savings, huge jumps in demand, Mm. a supply chain crunch, and then a war uh, on it, you know, affecting energy prices. It seems (laughs) we use the word unprecedented all the time. You know, I'll try it. I'll try not to use it again. So we're looking at another interest rate hike, though, next week. I mean, we're looking at a week from a week from today. Um, You think, obviously, that's a misguided move. I, I do. You know, we're we're driving. It's like we're driving into fog, Ben. And when you drive in a fog, you should slow down. Honestly, uh, we don't know what's going to happen globally. We should wait and see what's happening to the Canadian economy. It's quite possible we are already in recession. Uh, recession is defined as two quarters of shrinking real GDP in a row. And the the quarter that just finished, the July to September quarter, we don't have the data on yet. We won't get it for a few more weeks. But there's a good chance it was negative in which case the recession uh, has likely already started. 
And the idea of actually increasing interest rates further while we're already going into a recession, uh, frankly, would be a disaster. Then it's not going to be a short recession. It's going to be a long, painful thing. It's going to be like the recession of 81, 82 or 1990 to 1992 all over again. And um, Canadians, uh, you know, as, as we talked about, Canadians are not not ready for that at all. No, and you've mentioned, too, that the right answer here, you think, and you just mentioned it, is patience, because all the factors that are driving up inflation, as uh, unique as they are in this circumstance, uh, that the real answer here is just to, to wait in some ways. It's not the only answer, but it's one of them. It's part of the answer, Ben. Um, and, and this is where I think um, I, sort of interrogating a bit the Bank of Canada's theory, uh, I think, is important. And that is one thing we do in that paper that we released uh, today. They have a theory that in expectations of inflation will actually cause inflation. And this is one of the reasons they're in such a hurry to get inflation down, no matter what the cost. Because they say if we are patient and we allow some of those international factors like the supply chain problems, the transportation costs, uh, the oil price shock, etc., if we just wait and allow those to dissipate, in the meantime, Canadians will change their expectations and that will lead to higher inflation in the future. And that theory that inflation expectations themselves cause the inflation, I think, is quite unrealistic. Lots of us have got expectations that, you know, prices are going up. We see it every week at the grocery store. But that doesn't mean we can automatically demand wage increases to reflect those expectations. Not far from it. Most Canadians' wages haven't gone up anywhere near the 10% increase in the price of groceries. So uh, this focus on expectations, I think, is a bit uh, extreme. And uh, I do think that if we protected Canadians a bit during the inflation and tried to address some of those underlying causes, like the supply chain problems, and try to increase production rather than decrease it, which is what's happening now, then we could get inflation down without throwing the whole economy into a recession. The lucky ones these days, Jim Stanford, appear to be corporations because if anyone's not having a tough time right now, it seems to be corporations that are reporting huge profits. Uh, and uh, you've pointed that out, too, that uh, while corporations are doing really well, the average Canadian worker isn't doing so well. We uh, have had a lot of discussion the last week or so about supermarket profits, uh, Ben. That, of course, has been in the public eye because of uh, some of the votes uh, the parliament uh, house of commons has voted to uh, investigate supermarket profits and the role that they've played in pushing up that food inflation but uh it's not just supermarkets uh, really across the economy we've seen a real surge in uh, corporate profits um and i guess in a way we shouldn't be surprised i mean inflation is uh the result of companies putting up their prices and in some cases that's purely because their own costs went up and they're passing it on But uh, across the board, there's lots of evidence they're doing more than that. They're taking advantage of this moment of uncertainty, the supply chain problems, uh, the uh, kind of pent-up demand that consumers had as a result of the lockdowns, and increasing prices more than their costs. Uh, We've seen uh, this year an increase in corporate profits to the highest share of GDP ever in history. About 20% of Canada's GDP now shows up in after-tax profits uh, for corporations. Uh, workers' share of the pie has shrunk because their wages are not keeping up with prices. Uh, the small business share of the pie has shrunk a little bit, not as much as for workers, uh, but larger businesses uh, are actually doing very, very well. This was meant to be a time, we heard the term build back better a lot uh, mm. during the course of uh, the early days of the pandemic. It feels like this was an opportunity to do that 
as far as some of the economic inequalities were concerned, it feels like we're going in the opposite direction, Jim. Uh, right now, I, I think we are. And, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of reinforced by the sort of the, the negative mood and the fear and the expectations that uh, Canadians have that uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the progress we've made rebuilding from the pandemic. And frankly, we did really well initially. We, we bounced back faster than I ever would have thought we would have, uh, in part thanks to some of the emergency measures that were put in place. Uh, but now we've stalled. We, we still aren't back to where we should be. Our kind of trend growth in um, uh, in gross domestic product is, uh, is still not there. Uh, and yet we're being told, you know, we've got to tighten our belts and, and clamp down. So um, I am worried about what that's going to do to our social fabric. You know, we've had a lot of tensions and kind of divisions that came out uh, after the pandemic. And I think that with a recession and more tough times, those those tensions could be inflamed. And you've pointed out that we can't rely on the Bank of Canada to do this alone. That's one of the big issues here. We've sort of turned to the bank and said, okay, do your thing. Um, they are. They're playing by their playbook. But clearly you think the federal mm-hmm. government uh, has a role here that uh, some of the supports we saw during the pandemic might even help. Yeah, I think uh, in that period since the 1980s, when those textbooks were written that we were talking about, um, there there has been a kind of an assumption that inflation is the problem of the central bank. So we'll let the central bank handle it. And I, I think that kind of passing of the buck is is not quite right. First of all, the, the, the central bank might not do the right thing, and I'm worried about that right now. The central bank might not have the problem, the, the power to single-handedly solve the problem. You know, when the when the economy is weak, low interest rates alone don't do the trick. And when the economy is stronger and inflation might be higher, higher interest rates alone might not do the trick either. So this is where we do need, I think, uh, government uh, and other agencies to play an active role, both in limiting inflationary pressures, but also protecting Canadians against them until their kind of underlying causes uh, are addressed. Jim Stanford, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating. I suggest uh, listeners have a quick look uh, for the report. Again, it's called uh, Orthodox Cure for Inflation Will Be Worse Than the Disease. It's well worth uh, reading. It's not a point of view you always hear, but it certainly is an interesting one. Thanks so much tonight. Ben, thanks for having me. Now, for many, this one may list as a maybe not even a guilty pleasure, maybe a proud pleasure. Uh, but few Canadian pop songs captured the new wave sound of the early 80s. I remember it very well. I can never get the hair right. Uh, the early 80s quite as well or as successfully as the one written and sung by our next guest. The Safety Dance was a worldwide hit for Men Without Hats back in 1983, reaching the top three on Billboard, the U.S. charts, the top 10 in Britain. I didn't know this until today. It never made the top 10 here at home, but it peaked at number 11, but go figure. Well, this year, believe it or not, marks 40 years, 4-0, since the album containing that track was first released. So I wanted to take a trip back in time to see what's become of the band. What do they make of the enduring legacy of that track in particular? One you'll still hear at just about any great 80s night anywhere, whether it be in your living room or elsewhere. It turns out that founder and lead singer Ivan Doroschuk has called, sort of had a quiet and decidedly not new wave life in Victoria his home since the early 1990s. The band, though, still tours regularly. They have a slightly different makeup, but they're still out there playing and they continue to release new material. It so happens that we, we, Ivan and I, both grew up in the same neighborhood in Montreal and we both now live in Victoria. I don't know what that means, but we never crossed paths until 
tonight. So joining me now with more on Men Without Hats, the safety dance, and so much more is Ivan Doris Chuck, lead singer and founder of Men Without Hats. Thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. I was saying we both grew up in Outremont, in Montreal, that neighborhood of Montreal, not too far from McGill and the University of Montreal. We both wound up in Victoria, so it's it's great to finally cross paths. What's it been like to be back on the on the road, just out with audiences again? I mean, all of us were locked down for quite a while during COVID. It must be good to be out there playing live again and seeing people react to your music. Yeah, it's great. It's great. We've been having we've been on the road now for about for put the band together about ten years ago, played in South Africa and Australia, places that we never got to play the first time in the 80s the fans have been great we uh the great thing is it's cross-generational now and uh our original fans show up with with their kids and sometimes with their grandkids so it's a family affair it's great i was actually just at a concert in vancouver this week i went to see a new order in the pet shop boys speaking of the 80s uh, contemporaries of yours and yeah. yeah it was a really interesting audience because some of the people there were significantly older than i am i'm 50 uh and there was a lot of younger people there too what is it like to hear so much of the influence of those days, including obviously uh, Rhythm of Youth and the Safety Dance, to hear the, the, the influence of those songs still linger in modern music and still appeal to a whole new generation and other generations of people. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, it's what, what's one of the reasons we're still out here doing it is, is that when you open up the radio, when I open up the radio, I hear, I hear the 80s drum sounds. I hear synthesizers, robot voices. It's like the 80s all over again. It's it's been fun. We've we've reconnected with a lot, a whole new generation of fans through shows like like Glee, and right. uh, and a lot of other like sort of popular pop pop culture sort of adult cartoons, and uh, so it's 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 been fun. It's been it's been a whole new adventure for us. It, and, and the band itself too is. Uh, I'll ask you about about the eighties in a bit, but the band too has evolved. It's also a multi generational affair now, is it not? It is. It is. We have uh, Collins. Uh, my brother Colin's daughter Sahara is in the band now with us. Must be interesting. Must be different. It is. It's fun. Well, she's she's been around the band for for her whole life. She kind of right. grew up with the with the band, so it's it's no uh, she's no stranger to the whole thing. I want to go back to the to the early '80s and just the the. I mean, I, you know, you were from Montreal. I was from Montreal. It was a big deal that a Montreal band, and there'd been a few at the time that were doing pretty well. But it was a big deal for a Montreal band to uh, to emerge at that time, and what had was pretty. Uh, big new wave movement of the of that year of eighty two eighty three. Um, how did the song come about? The song, the the origin story of the band uh, was that I was in a club. Well, this happened a couple of times, but I would, I would be in a club, and it was the end of the eighties. Uh, sorry, the end of the seventies. It was the dying days of disco, and every now and then the DJ would slip in a, a new wave song. He'd slip in a, a B fifty twos rock lobster or a Devo song or or you know some, something new wave and we'd get up and start to pogo and we'd be jumping up and down pogo was the uh, the original slam dance the precursor to slam dance and the mosh pit nobody had ever seen it before and they thought we were fighting we'd be bouncing off each other jumping up and down and we get kicked out and we got kicked out a few times so i went home and wrote wrote this anthem to uh freedom of dancing and there it was just the when you first recorded it, I mean, I'm not sure how this works, but when you first, it wasn't the first um, single off the record. I remember that. Uh, but when you first put it down and you, did you have an idea that it would be huge? Because the sound was, it sounds were evolving back in the early eighties. I mean, things were hits in 82, 83 that wouldn't have been hits in 80 or 81. Well, I'll tell you quite frankly, when you're a young songwriter, you think that every th song you write is, you know, destined to be a massive hit. 
I didn't, we didn't think it was going to be the first, you know, we, we didn't choose it as the first single. We chose, uh, I got the message instead. Both songs made it into the top 40 in Canada. It was good enough for us that the record label that we were signed to a little label in England, put up the money for the second record. And so we were, it's while we were in studio doing the second record that the remix of Safety Dance hit number one on the Billboard dance charts. And that's when the whole thing really took off. Yeah, I think even at the time, a lot of people were surprised that you were Canadian because the the the, the record that you were most known for sounded so of the time British. And yet it wasn't. Here was this group from from Montreal. Yeah, well, it was also the fact that we were that when the record first came out in in Canada, it was came out on import because we couldn't get a deal in Canada. We weren't too happy because the record was like twice the price of every other record in Canada. So. Yeah, you'd have to go to Dutchies in on St. Lawrence to buy your record instead exactly. of Sam yeah. the record man. Phantasmagoria. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember all those places for me. I mean, Montreal was a great record town back in the day. And even when it came to, to music, like when it came to New Wave, a lot of bands were broken in Canada or in Montreal specifically. A lot of uh, British imports were put out at home first. So there was always a big... Uh, there was always a big audience for that for that music in the city itself. Yeah, Montreal was a really interesting place as far as music is concerned. I, I compare it to New York uh, a bit. I call it the Little Apple because the artistic scene in Montreal is 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 a lot like New York. It's it's made up of people that that aren't from New York or aren't from Montreal. And the the local music scene in Montreal was very small. It was about the size of Hamilton's local music scene, but it was made up of of musicians from all across the country. And it's almost as if to be legit in the music field, you have to have spent a couple of years in Montreal slogging it out. Um, What was it like, Ivan, just just at the head of the at the height of that? Because it must have been pretty. It must have been pretty overwhelming to to, that song had such success. The band had so much success so quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. MTV was 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 a big part of it too. That's my face became instantly recognizable too, and that was that was a big shock for me too. So I was like, I remember the first time what happened was I I we got off the tour bus. It was somewhere like in New Jersey or something like that, and we we just went into a supermarket to get some some supplies, and I was I was checking my stuff out. I was paying for my stuff, and the the cashier looked at me. And she started screaming, it's him, it's him, it's him, pointing at me, it's him, screaming like hysterically. And the first thought that crossed my mind was she's confused me with somebody else. She's, she thinks I'm like somebody who, who robbed the store or something like that. And finally, another cashier came over and she said, what's the problem? And she goes, it's the guy from the video. And that's I realized what was going on and was, ran back in the tour bus. And my life's never been the same. No, exactly. Um, there was other success in the eighties. I mean, Pop Goes the World was a very different kind of record, but I mean, you, this, your your sound evolved as well. Was it tough in that time not to get caught? I mean, not to get caught in trying to make the same record over and over again. Yeah, well, like the you know, obviously the record company wanted Son of Safety Dance and Return of Safety Dance and <laughs> Beneath the Planet of Safety Dance and and so on. But we were quite fortunate because between Safety Dance and Pop Goes the World. There was a big technological revolution in the music instrument world. There was a, a, a system called MIDI was invented and came out between those two records. And MIDI was a, is a system that still exists, and it allows you to hook up all your keyboards and your computers and your drum machines and your sequencers and everything all together and run it with one finger. And that was just like, for us, it was just like, that was just a brand new world. It, what makes the charm, I think, of... of 
of rhythm of youth is that everything was done by hand. It's like, it's like artisanal. It's it's, it's, you know, we had no sequencers. We had no, the only thing that was sequenced was the drum machine was the drum box. And that was just playing a straight beat. There was no programming. You couldn't program. The only thing you could program was the on off switch on those things. So that was it. There was a big change. And so that's the change in the sound. We could do a lot more things with, with keyboards when we came to Pop Goes the World. You spent the last, I mean, I was reading an um, interview you did with the local paper in Victoria recently, just about how you kind of then came out here about 20 years ago and and found um, something very different from that experience in the in the grocery store in New Jersey, sort of a, a certain um, quiet anonymity, but in, in some ways you get to pick and choose uh, when you're in front of an audience these days. Yeah, no, it's been great. It's, it's, I love, I love Victoria and we got, uh, we have, we got a lot of scenery to choose from. And there's a lot of beauty in this country. And I'd only been here once before, but like once on tour, we'd been here once on tour and I'd been here once to visit my brother, Colin, who had moved here before me. And that's when I decided, we decided to to, to move here. And and what now? I mean, you, you continue to tour, uh, 40th anniversary of Rhythm of Youth, obviously. Yeah. You've had a new version of the Safety Dance, the mid-tempo version, which I recommend people go listen to because it's very different. Um, but what's on the agenda for, uh, what, what's coming up? We have a, our next thing is uh, we have uh, we're working the uh, Winter Song Festival in uh, Stuffville, uh, Ontario, in January. I think Stars is on that bill too. Then we do a tour. We're doing a mini tour of Quebec in at the end of February and March, and we're we're going all over the province. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be great. And so after the Quebec thing, we're going to be going. Our, our agents putting together a sort of a uh, '80s package uh, to go across Canada with uh, a couple of Canadian bands and one international band. I can't sort of reveal who it is yet. I mean, I hadn't toured for like 20 years. And my first tour coming back 10 years ago was opening up for the Human League and B-52s all over America. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Yeah. You know, at the time, you know, my dad was in the music business. You know, he was a rock fan. I think a lot of people didn't take New Wave very seriously. And it's been remarkable to see how all that music 40 years later has now taken its place in the uh, in the echelons of music history, right alongside some of the sort of what we consider to be the classic tracks of the sixties and the seventies. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think its staying power is due to the fact that it's it's um, the melodies. There's a lot of melody in 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 the new wave. A lot of tunes you can sing sing along to. A lot of lot of catchy refrains and stuff. And and it's a dance music. It's it's a dance. There's always a dance beat to it. Which is why, like things like disco, is still around because it's a dance music. It's got it's got the right BPM, and new wave music is kind of the same thing. You know, that a lot of songs. There's a there's a lot a lot of songs. I don't know if people are going to be in 20 years if people are going to be sitting around the campfire singing Eminem songs or or what. But it's there's a lot of songs in the, from the 80s. And you never get tired of playing the safety dance. I would assume, or do you, <laughs> or do you? No, I don't. I don't. I tell you, I've said it before that I feel sometimes like the song is so much bigger than I am. So it's so much like everybody knows the song, but not everybody knows it's Men Without Hats. And and so I sometimes I feel like like a museum curator going around the world presenting this musical artifact to people that brings brings them immense joy. And it's great. That's what keeps us going too. Is the it just makes people so happy whenever we play it. I'd be like, how can you go wrong? We play it twice a show, actually. Ivan, thank you so much for your time tonight and for uh, for, for explaining the history behind uh, the track and the band, too. It's great to, great just to see you still performing and still uh, making people happy with a number of records, not just that one. Okay, thanks a lot. Nice talking thanks. to you.
If you're not quite sure where the Sunshine Coast is, you'll probably know where the town of Gibsons is because it was home to the TV series The Beachcombers. That is the Sunshine Coast. It's about a 45-minute ferry ride north of Horseshoe Bay, which is in West Vancouver, so not too, too far uh, from Vancouver itself. It's a fast-growing area. Lots of building going on there. Lots of young families moving out there. Lots of people retiring from Vancouver out there. And it's called the Sunshine Ghost because it gets a lot of sunshine. But this year has been something exceptional. Now, normally in Seashelt, which is just up the road from Gibsons, they get about 200 millimeters of rain in the summer. This year, from July 10th till now, they've had nine. Nine millimeters. That's it. Um So you can imagine they're struggling with a real lack of water right now. So today was, in fact, the first day of a ban on all non-essential industrial and commercial use of water on the Sunshine Coast. They've had to mandate that because there's just not enough for everyone to have enough. Um, As I was mentioning, there's nothing fictional about this crisis, even though that area is so well known for that fictional series. After three months without rain, three months They moved to their highest level of restrictions back at the end of August so they could save water for homes, hospital, and fire protection. That was ending all outdoor use, so no watering your lawn, no washing your car, no filling your pool. And for farmers, real limitations, if any, on irrigating crops. I don't think anyone was allowed to do that either. So again, it's gotten even worse. To give you an idea of what's going on right around this province right right now, It's been a really warm and sunny fall. Now, people aren't necessarily complaining about the warmth and the sunshine, um, but the lower mainland, all of Vancouver Island, and the northeastern part of the province are all living through drought right now. More than 150 daytime temperature records were broken across BC in September, 150, and another 33 have been set in the first week of this month. Um, So it's just been incredibly warm and dry. And again, for Seashell, it's just meant that it's gotten worse there. So now again, the ban extended to commercial and industrial non-essential use. That includes places such as factories, like cement factories, cannabis production, and of course, places like cideries and breweries. Uh, Here is a member of the Sunshine Coast Regional District discussing the ban. The rain we are expecting for late last week won't be enough by any means to do anything in terms of lake levels. The intent is really to focus on, make sure that we have enough water for residents, for the hospital, for firefighting. At the same time as we're still working on all kinds of means to expand our water supply. So they are working on water supply there, but for the time being, there is a ban going on. And that's not good news if you rely on water supply. So one business that has been hit is the very appropriately named Persephone Brewery. Persephone, you'll remember, uh, was the boat uh, on Nick's boat on uh, on the Beachcombers. I hope I haven't gotten that wrong. Yes, it was Nick's boat on the Beachcombers. And joining me now is Brian Smith, founder and CEO of Persephone Brewery in Gibsons, BC. Thanks for your time tonight, Brian. Hi, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is something we've been reading about for a while, but it feels like it's gotten more extreme in recent days. Uh, it has indeed. I, I'm not sure there are precedents where small business is getting cut off from its water source, uh, at least not in BC. What I mean, the impact on a brewery seems pretty obvious, but just what exactly are you going to do and how long do you feel like you can hold out without water? 
Yeah, well, you know, let's forgive me, but I want to take one quick step back to say that, you know, that our farm was cut off at the end of August. And so, you know, farmers across our region haven't been able to irrigate their crops. And so, you know, it's I think it's always important to kind of start there. The, in terms of our brewery, uh, I, I mean, you know, we're, we're sort of scrambling to figure out what we're going to do. It, it If it doesn't go on too long, this won't be catastrophic. We certainly have some Beer, uh, you know, you know, in inventory, finished product in inventory, we have some work in progress uh, that we could probably get out. Um, and so the fact that we stopped brewing last night and as soon as we found out, uh, you know, won't really hurt us unless this goes on past, let's say, two weeks. Uh, and then it starts to get really worrisome. You mentioned this earlier, Brian, it's not just a brewery, you have a farm as well. And you had already seen, as you were saying, you had already seen the impacts of water restrictions as everyone else did. So if, if listeners could understand, this has happened in a few different phases of restrictions as the stages have, have increased. Is that right? That's right. And in fact, this has happened over the last few years. If I'm not mistaken, four out of the last seven years, we've faced stage four watering restrictions, which means no outdoor watering for, for anyone, including farms. Uh, and so one really has to wrestle with, you know, the sort of ethics around, you know, farmers getting cut off, but not breweries. And so, you know, we knew that this was uh, was is, is a challenge for our community and, and we're trying to do right by the community. And so we stopped brewing as soon as we found out how how dire it was. And here we are trying to figure out where to go next. Just, Brian, as a member of the community, not just a small, not just a business owner, but also a member of the community, someone who lives there, has a family there, what's it been like just to go through these, this drought and, and then the increasing restrictions right down to uh, something like your brewery being cut off? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that is most uh, you know, so, so important to touch on and isn't always so obvious is that times of stress and anxiety can lead to uh, you know, fracturing of community that can lead to, you know, people pointing fingers at each other and, and trying to choose sides and divisiveness. And, and so I think what, you know, what we're trying to do in our community is say, uh, no, let's all pull together to figure out these solutions. So not unlike we did when, you know, COVID came around, I, I think all, you know, sort of you know, uh, stakeholders in the community need to start working together. So including our consumers and our shareholders and our business partners and our government, um, so that's what you know. We're sort of seeing is that that anxiety leading to divisiveness. But uh, like, how how do we combat that in the interest of the collective? Yeah, I mean, Brian, I, I think we've seen this all around the world. It's just sometimes when it lands on the doorsteps of the Sunshine Coast, you know, just just north of BC, of Vancouver, it's a surprise. But fight fights over limited resources can get nasty, right? I mean, I think we, are you seeing that starting? How much are you seeing that where you are? And, and what does it bode for the future? Yeah, I think that is a risk and we're seeing a little bit of it. But hey, you know what? I think we can I can think I think we can stop that. You know, I think we can be part of the the discourse that is it, it's not us versus them. It's not farmer versus brewery. It's not us versus government and government letting small business down. It's that we need to work together. So our business, among others, have to reduce the amount of water that we need. And which is part of the reason, by the way, we're doing a fundraise right now to be able to drill our own well. So we need to do our part and we need to you know, support our elected and uh, you know, representatives and our local government staff to to to, you know, to, to choose the right paths forward and to make the right investments. And so I think, you know, I, I keep wanting to bring it back to, uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to just affect, you know, sort of one party or another. 
it's eventually going to affect us all. I mean, farmers not being able to irrigate crops, you know, means their livelihood is compromised. But maybe more importantly, and if you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, it means our food security is compromised. And that includes everybody. And so trying to keep, you know, raising the discourse up up to a higher level, that is uh, that we all need to be working on together on solutions. Yeah, I mean, just as a resident, had you seen this coming? I mean, I I think a lot of Canadians, uh, British Columbians, take it for granted that water is not always an abundant supply, but there's always supply. Um, Just as a resident of the area, had you seen this coming? Were there concerns that this was going to happen eventually? Yeah, I I mean, like I say, several of the last few years, you know, we all have had restrictions. And so everybody is sort of wrestling with how much should I water my plants? And, you know, should I wash my car this week? And so the, the, you know, the discussion has been pretty, you know, fairly prevalent annually. Uh, What's more is, you know, our, our, our community, we live in a, you know, unfortunately, a community that has lots of discussion around things like climate change and the impacts thereof. And so, you know, whether it was the floods last year in November or the long spring that prevented pollinators from coming out on time and and pollinating apple trees or this drought, you know, we're having these discussions uh, at the community level and 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 our our community in particular is is engaged in that. Yeah, Brian, I was actually right near you for the heat dome. Uh, believe it or not, uh, you know, a couple of summers ago, and it was uh, it was remarkably warm on the Sunshine Coast. Needless to say, what do you think the solutions are? Do communities? I mean, because in some ways, what I'm seeing is that uh, places like Gibson's and Seashell are becoming bellwethers for other parts of the province. This is not only going to happen to you, right? It's happening elsewhere. So, how do we tackle it? Do you think? I mean, as a, as a business owner, as a citizen, as a resident, uh, where do you think we begin? Yeah, good, great question, and and thanks for going there. A lot of the sort of media discussion is what's the problem, and and but I want to talk about solutions like you. So I, I think there's a few different. One, we need to engage in the discourse about what you know. How do we work together? Two, we need to get behind and support each other's efforts, particularly those providing leadership. And so uh, you know, you know, not to to state overstate a, a brag here, but Persephone is trying to provide some leadership. We're trying to build a community. We have this raise right now where we're trying to bring on 2,000 new shareholders, not just because we need to capitalize the growth of our company, but because we want to create a collective effort. And then three, uh, you know, we're really doubling down on nature-based solutions to climate change. Ours in, in particular is regenerative agriculture. Uh, regenerative, you know, ag has the potential of both sequestering carbon, so starting to work on, you know, or continue to work on mitigation, climate mitigation, but also regenerative agriculture helps us prepare and adapt to changing climate, you know, climatic events and and circumstances. For example, as as our soil gets healthier, it'll be able to utilize water more efficiently. And so, you know, some of these nature-based solutions to climate are worth investing in, uh, which is why we're, we're, we're doing so. And yet you face that that obvious dilemma that to make beer, you need water. And, you know, Persephone is a brewery. So how do you solve that issue? Yeah, sorry. I, I'll, I'll, yeah, I should have touched on this one, too. I mean, I think at, uh, at a very simplistic sort of level, we need better infrastructure in our region. And our local government has been working on solutions, including, you know, drilling a couple of new wells on Church Road and in Langdale. And as I understand it, I'm no, I'm no you know, expert on, or engineer, but as I understand it, with those wells will come the end of these restrictions, you know, on an annual basis. It should be sufficient for our, our, our current needs and perhaps for a growing population. So I think investment in infrastructure is our, is our you know, sort of path to the immediate water source problem. But again, we always want to keep bringing this back to, yeah, but climate's going to keep getting worse. These climate events are going to keep getting worse. Are we prepared for that? 
I'm not sure, but we need to keep talking about it. And Brian, and I'm sure you've seen too, and I've noticed it, just the growth in, in your area. A lot of communities around the country have witnessed yeah. big, big growth, and that's, you know, exacerbating the issue, no doubt. It is, absolutely. And so, you know, the policymakers need to wrestle with things like like short-term rentals and developments and how to leverage that growth for the growth of, you know, sufficient infrastructure for the preparation, emergency, climate emergency preparation, and, 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 and then all of us, especially those of us, I believe, who are working in the food chain and the value chain of providing food security, really need to think about how do we prepare uh, and make sure that we can feed our communities, um, you know, for generations to come. And just in the short term, so you said a couple of weeks, uh, you feel like you're okay, but I'm sure you've had some tough conversations with your staff, given what's had to happen. Yeah, I mean, our staff, so first of all, you know, you you may recall, we've been through a, a few different uh, adversities, you know, one with the Agricultural Land Reserve, and then we all went through COVID. And so our staff are what I would characterize as remarkably resilient, you know, people and a team. Uh, so it hasn't had to be too hard of conversations. It's more like, okay, let's problem solve. Uh, and what are we going to do this week? How do we change our practices, you know, immediately to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our community in terms of, you know, water conservation? But what are we going to look at next week for our options around, you know, packaging out or not, or contract brewing off of the coast or bringing water over from, you know, communities that have sufficient amounts? So, you know, we're looking at the options and at this point, not talking about layoffs. Uh, if the drought were to go on for, let's say, three or four more weeks, and it really becomes prolonged, um, things might get more dire. But at this point, we are cautiously optimistic that we're going to get through this, especially with the help of our friends. Brian Smith, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate your insight on this. Okay, thanks very much, Ben. Well, it was no doubt a very difficult day for Burnaby RCMP officers to go to work today after the death of their colleague yesterday, 31-year-old Shailen Yang, um, was killed during an altercation. Uh, she was part of a mental health and homeless outreach team. She was on a call to a small patch of grass um, where someone had camped, uh, and there was an altercation during that call, and she was stabbed to death. Um, we're learning more today, a little bit more about what happened. A uh, 37-year-old man has now been charged. Uh, Jung Won Ham made his first court appearance today. Police do not know if he has any criminal record, if he was known to them, if he was known to her, if she dealt with him in the past. We're still finding that out. We did learn today that there was video of the incident, so we surveillance video, so we may have uh, get a better idea fairly soon of exactly what happened. Um, but again, what happened remains under investigation tonight. Please say the incident turned deadly quickly. Uh, Constable Young is being remembered today as a loving wife, daughter, and sister who had volunteered to work with that team, um, who took that work very seriously in the three years that she'd been with the force. Uh, Chief Superintendent Graham de la Gougendière, the officer in charge of the RCMP detachment in Burnaby, spoke of her dedication yesterday. She was compassionate and caring, and she brought those skills every day to her job working with our community's most vulnerable, including those experiencing homelessness and mental health issues. Uh, working with mental health and homelessness can be challenging, but Shailen embraced that job with passion. She found value working with this team and working with those struggling in our community. Well, joining me now is Bruce Pitt-Payne. He's a retired RCMP major crimes investigator and consultant. Thanks so much for your time tonight. No worries. Hello. It's It's been hard to make sense. I mean, every 
death of a police officer in the line of duty is in its own way different and tragic. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you thought when you first heard about this one, because it seems particularly awful. Well, my first thoughts are we've had too many of them in the last short while. I think five in the last five weeks, this makes it. Uh, I'm not going to jump to the conclusion that that means anything, um, such as violence is getting worse against the police. But regardless, um, it, it doesn't matter how many you hear about it. It it hits you in the gut. And I, I can, can't even imagine. I'm not working for the force anymore. I can only imagine how hard it is for those that are, are still working, particularly in her detachment um, and on IHIT. They haven't had a chance to grieve yet, and they won't even be able to until they've uh, dug further into the investigation. Yeah, and I can only imagine, too, when you have a, you know, a, a, there must be a, a protective, protective feeling for younger officers, too, or ones who are new. I mean, she's relatively new, right? Yeah. Uh, it, um, sorry, um, I missed uh, the question there. It's. Um, I mean, just there, there must be just the sense too that she was a younger officer. She was starting out. Um, there must be the sense that that you're there to protect her too. Yeah, it, exactly. And and I think everybody thinks that. Um, it, it, I mean, at the end of the day, whether she had more service or not, um, it, it still hits the same. I've I've in my service experienced with very senior members and also with very junior members. And it's, it's the same feeling of absolute helplessness. In your experience, because we were speaking with, uh, with another former Toronto police officer last week, following the mm-hmm. deaths of those two officers in Innisfil in, in not yeah. similar, but not dissimilar circumstances uh, that sometimes it is those routine calls, the ones where you don't expect something to go wrong, where things can go wrong, really quickly. And he was talking about the fact that he looks back on his days on the beat and looks back at some of the incidents he has and realizes how lucky he was that nothing went wrong. Absolutely. It's, it's rarely the call that where you expect something to go wrong. That is the the tricky one because you prep for it, but it's the routine call, regardless of whether you've done everything right. They're the ones that surprise you. And the, uh, attacker, the aggressive person against you, always has the element of surprise in their favor, and and that's the tough part. I've experienced that as of many other officers. I think you put that very well. What kind of assessments would have been done before? Again, you know, assisting a parks officer to go see someone mm-hmm. in a tent is probably something that she was doing daily at this point in time. But what kind of uh, assessment would have been made before going to a call like that one? Do you think? Uh, the amount of tents. Um, but the tricky part here, Ben, is that that these calls, and I know we use the term routine, um, they're the bread and butter of what they do every single day. They go to the call and they don't have much information until they get there. Unfortunately, there isn't much that we could do to change that. And that's why the the job is so inherently risky. You just don't know until you get there. Some calls, yes. If it's a domestic violence incident, then you are able to possibly plan and take more officers. But you can't say we're going to go in with 10 and then hope we don't need it for a call like this. So um, that's the frustrating part. 
Yeah, I guess when we use the term routine, we're not using it correctly, are we? Because routine suggests that it's simple, um, yeah. like a, your daily routine. Whereas in this case, it's simply common. It's it's common that that those are the calls that you get. You know, these are, as you put it, the, the bread and butter. Are there any questions? What questions do we need to answer now about what could have happened? Because clearly, we, we have to. And you you pointed this out. Five police officers in in a little over a month, three in the past week, two on mental health calls. We need Mm -hmm. to do something. What could it be? Well, I think I think we we have to just not give up and keep probing this. Uh, The good part about all of this is, as you mentioned, I believe, in in your earlier uh, statement there, um, there was an eyewitness obviously the parks person this is what led to such a speedy charge approval um as well there was video evidence that would help so it's finding out what happened at the scene isn't going to be the tough part it's finding out how to fix the bigger problem um and it's it's going to be digging deeply into the mental health crisis um we had a great report that just came out from uh um, Mr. Lepard, Doug Lepard, uh, and Amanda Butler, uh, that was uh, put together by the province. Um, and I think we should start looking at the root causes uh, before anybody jumps to conclusions about, uh, you know, this is a sort of an endemic situation with the attacks on police officer or violence is increasing or it's becoming a more dangerous job. How do we actually deal with the mental health and addiction crisis before it gets to this point? Um, and that is something that I obviously don't have an answer for, um, but I'm hoping somebody actually keeps digging for it and follows the science. It feels like we'd have to at this point. How much did you, I mean, just the fact that uh, Constable Yang was part of this team, Mm-hmm. Um, suggests suggests that that Burnaby RCMP and police forces right across the country, right across the province, right across the city are fully aware that you need mm-hmm. that kind of expertise. Um, yes. And so we have seen improvements. Uh, it's just yes. it's so tragic that those are the officers who often end up in those situations. Absolutely, and and it, the improvements are there when you look at Burnaby detachment, at Surrey detachment. Um, And it's not an RCMP versus city police. I really think the police are trying. They've realized ages ago that um, these are mental health issues. They're medical issues as such. The addiction, it's health care. And there's got to be a balance now between police enforcement, because they're not going to arrest their way out of this sort of situation, the crisis they're facing. So there's got to be obviously some money put into an alternative which is treating it as a health care issue. Yeah, I, I guess in this case, and you pointed that out perfectly, what happened, we'll probably never be able to find out why, or there probably isn't even a why. Uh, but to stop it from happening again, to make sure there are no more tragedies like yeah. the one facing Constable Yang's family and her colleagues tonight, that would be the best yeah. tribute. Exactly, to because at, at the end of the day, Ben, uh, right now, as I'm speaking, I'm I'm feeling rather gutted. Um, I didn't even sleep well, and I'm not on the force anymore. I had a rough night last night after hearing about this. I can't even imagine what her family is going through, and that's that's really who I'm focusing on right now. There's a lot of work to be done, but I think right now I'm so impressed that everybody is showing support and the RCMP, the way they've dealt with this, uh, support for Shailene's family and for the, her colleagues at Right now, that's, I think, the most important thing. 
And I think the rest can wait until a little bit of grieving has happened. And then I'm sure people will start putting things together. Yeah, I imagine it's been a tough day for anyone who's ever put on that uniform. Yeah, it has. Bruce Pitt-Payne, thank you so much for sharing that with me tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. We need to do more to step up on our mental health funding, as uh, the Honourable Member before mentioned. We need to make sure uh, we are giving our frontline police officers uh, the tools uh, to be supported uh, as they encounter difficult situations. The Prime Minister today in the House of Commons commenting on the death of Constable Shailen Yang in Burnaby yesterday, the Burnaby RCMP constable. Now that comes just a week after, as I was mentioning earlier, after two officers with the South Simcoe Police Service in Ontario were shot and killed while responding to a domestic disturbance in the town of Innisfil, north of Toronto. A joint funeral will be held tomorrow for Constable Devin Northrup, who also worked with outreach and mental health teams there, and Constable Morgan Russell, who was a trained crisis negotiator. And while investigations continue in both Ontario and BC tonight, that two officers working in mental health teams have died in just a week has to raise questions on a number of fronts. And I think the Prime Minister brought them up. He talked about needing to give them, police officers, the proper support. Are we giving them the proper support to handle these very delicate and sometimes dangerous situations? Uh, To help us with that is Uzma Williams. She's with the Police Studies Program at McEwen University in Edmonton and co-author of Police Response to Mental Health in Canada. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. You've written about this. You know a lot about it. Um, Are we doing enough to make sure that officers are prepared for these sorts of situations? Um, we can always do more. I, police officers, when they go to calls, there's, the majority of their calls deal with mental health. Most police officers, they deal with mental health on a basis. Um, but like any profession, even with mental health professionals, we can always do more to provide training, to provide education and whatnot. Um, we, we don't fully recognize how much danger there is in police work. It might not even be a mental health call. It could just be someone who has very hateful, aggressive behaviors. And so in any call a police officer deals with, there's very big dangers involved with that. And Yeah, you see them very, I mean, you see trainees, right? What, what do you tell them about, about, uh, about mental health, about having to confront that um, day in, day out, and both just the delicate, the delicate nature of it, also sometimes the danger of it? How do you try to explain it to them? I see trainees, and I also work with active RCMP officers. And what I see happening more and more is that, especially younger recruits, they're more afraid to respond to calls, anything that has to do with ethnicity, anything with mental health, um, anywhere where there's a video recording because they're scared to get in trouble for their actions. And so I tell them, you need to always fault on what you're trained to do. And no matter what kind of call you go into, whether it's mental health or um, just your average domestic violence, whatever it is, you always need to be careful for yourself. With that, once, once the situation is controlled, that's when they can deal with the mental health stuff. So we, we need to build confidence up in our police officers again. Um, I think as a community, we've started to let our police down. Uh, we, we show little empathy, little compassion for what they do. And these are the people that scrape up dead bodies off the roads and whatnot. Um, they're the ones who help yeah. sexual assault victims, young children. And we, we don't do enough to support them. This, uh, yeah, the, 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 what, what struck me about yesterday's incident, yesterday's murder, let's call it what it is, and the one that happened last week in Ontario, is that it appears that even though there were trained specialists there to deal with what they perceived could be uh, a mental health issue, that neither of those officers seemed to have had a time 
to do much, that they were they were essentially attacked upon arrival. We don't know all the details of the case in BC yet, but we do know some of the details of the case north of Toronto. Um, it seems like that's a difficult one to try to, because these are the officers, the officers that you're training to deal with these mental health situations are the ones who get sent out to deal with them. And oftentimes those are very dangerous. They can be very, turn into very dangerous situations very quickly. What do you tell them about that? Well, once again, mental health training does not mean you are safe from danger. And again, because that danger can come from either mental health, it can come from someone who has just hate in them. It doesn't, um, it doesn't take away from that potential of violence and danger. And so, again, with, with our members, a lot of police officers are being targeted just based on their uniform and nothing more. Um, we always have to just keep raising awareness for our members to um, always, always do what they're trained to do and yeah. just look out for them more. Do you bring that up at all that sometimes, uh, and this is, we don't know this to be true in either of the cases that happened recently, but sometimes the uniform itself uh, is, is, is what's putting them in danger to some extent? Yes, absolutely. For people, they, they, I think especially in the last few years, um, people have become more and more uncooperative with police, and that's given them more legroom to feel that they can do what they want to take advantage of people. And they see... Uh, police as government agents and only that they don't see them as um, public servants as safety members and 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 just people who are there to help us um, right. they see them as targets what do you tell when you have to go back to work on a day like today or in the last week we've seen a number of of, of officers killed in the line of duty when you have to go back to to work and speak to either you know members rcmp members or trainees what do you tell them? They must ask you questions about what's happened and how they can, what, how, what they need to know to, to be able to do this job properly and also to protect themselves. I, I tell them we have to, um, it, it's such a sad reality, but there's so much danger in what they do. They, and that's exactly it. We just have to acknowledge what it is. There's danger at every call that they get. And we always just have to be aware of that danger. Always have to go back to the training they're given in depot or whatever police organization they're from. Um, their training safety is in, number one. Is that training improved? Have you noticed even in the time that you've done this? I know, of course, that you, you helped put together that book on police response to mental health in Canada. Have you noticed a greater emphasis on preparing officers to deal with mental health issues? I feel police, they've, they have a strong response to mental health. Because they deal with mental health so much, they know um, what needs to be done in those situations. There's some individuals trained better than others, but in all calls, there's a really strong mental health component. Uh, as a last question, do you think do you think that it should be police responding to these issues, or do you think there should be some other way of doing this, some other way that might not involve having to use police to respond to these sorts of incidents? Police are very, very important in these responses. I don't think these responses can be done without police. I don't think community social workers or psychologists, they're actually equipped to deal with some of the calls that police officers deal with. When you're dealing with someone who has excited delirium or any sort of propensity for violence, I don't think you can ever accomplish success in that situation without police. Again, with, with the first dance being, we need to, when police go in, they need to control that situation. Because it doesn't matter, again, if you have mental health or not, that propensity of violence is what needs to be targeted. And once that's done, that's when police can use their mental health tools and whatnot. Well, Uzma Williams, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.